0: now in our 19th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show, committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community.
1: Good evening. I'm Liz Mitchell. In the 1950s, the South African National Party government introduced laws that prohibited interracial sex and marriage and strictly segregated residential areas, schools, trains, buses, Beaches, toilets, parks, stadium, ambulances, hospitals, cemeteries, everything. These laws were brutally enforced by the police. This form of control was to be known as apartheid.
0: And what follows is a chronology of several of the repressive laws passed by the South African National Party government. One, the Prohibition of Mixed Marriages Act number 55, passed in 1949. And this first major law to be passed by the Nationalist Party made it illegal for white South Africans to marry people of other races. And then second, the Immorality Act of 1950 banned all extramarital sexual relations between whites and non-whites. And then the Population Registration Act, number 30, passed in 1950. This law classified every South African according to their racial group. This would determine where they were allowed to live or what work they could do.
1: And there was the Pass Laws Act in 1952, also known as the Natives Laws. Pass laws severely limited the movements of not only Black African citizens, but other people of color by requiring them to carry passbooks when outside their homelands or designated areas. And finally, the Group Areas Act, 1950. The act was the foundation of residential apartheid. It provided that each racial group could own land, occupy premises, and trade only in their separate area.
0: Bo Peterson is a professional South African actress currently living in the United States. Pieces of Me is an autobiographical play that exposes the devastating emotional cost of living secretly as a mixed race family under the vicious racist apartheid regime and the legacy it bore.
1: Joining us this evening to discuss the autobiographical play, Pieces of Me and the harsh living conditions that her family experienced in South Africa is Ms. Bo Peterson. Bo, thank you for agreeing to do this
2: and thank you for being on Bring It On. Well, thank you very, very much. I'm very, very honored.
0: Um, when Liz first shared the story um, of pieces of me and 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 introduced me uh, to you yes. before, before our meeting, and um, this is the first time we've had a chance to dialogue, I was really taken aback just with the concept of the degree of segregation, the degree of repression. I I grew up, I knew of apartheid only through, I guess, uh, studies in school of Nelson Mandela, Stephen Biko, and people like Bishop Desmond Tutu, and some others who were valiant fighters on the front line. And... Here we are in America, of course, going through the 60s and 70s, 50s, 60s, well, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, going through our own form of Jim Crow and and other things. Well, South Africa, I've never lived there, and I never talked to anyone who lived under that repressive regime. And we began sort of a chronology of the different repressive laws that were passed. What have we missed? And if you can just sort of fill in the gaps of the mindset back then, and I just want to turn this over to you.
2: Yeah, you know, I think what I want to start off with is that a lot of people assume that these laws uh, were brought about only by the Nationalist Party in the, well, they came into power in 1948, but the British brought this, you know, from early, early days, as did the Dutch, who were the first um, colonialists in 1652. So, but what the um, nationalists did was really enforce the laws, um, and and viciously, as I said. But I think the laws that you've spoken were the most, uh, were the they sort of provided the basic framework. So the Mixed Marriages Act, the Immorality Act, Group Areas Act, and of course the Population Registration Act, which was, I think, the the big um, the, the, the strongest and, and most awful, because it created by law an idea that race exists, um, and as we know, you know, um, biologically um, there is no such thing. However, it is how the world has been defined, and what that in what happened is then people internalize it. So either if you are classified white, you feel that you are the masters and the mistresses of the world and stride the world like that. And if you are classified in another way, um, that kind of damage happens.
0: I I look in America and, of course, um, cases that brought this to the forefront as far as intermarriage, Loving versus Virginia is yes. one. And we've had a show on that, and we've actually talked to a lady whose parents purposefully married in Virginia. They were interracial, just to say, we got married in Virginia. Um, they, of course, were aware of the mm-hmm. loving. And then there's, I think, a um, a series of the loving case that's been on TV, and um, it, things that make you shake your head, and I, and, and the, the distances and... and the lengths that love, love meaning the, the emotion, the passion, will go
2: yeah. when you
0: love someone else and under potential threat to your life, what exactly. a person will do. Yes. Uh, how was it in South Africa, say, for two people of different races to fall in love?
2: You know, it was difficult um, to begin with, um, especially after apartheid came into being, because socially you were so segregated. So the the opportunity or the chances of meeting people of uh, different skin color was not that great. You know, you had different schools, beaches. I mean, um, so, but when my parents, so my father was um, black and my mother was white. um, That was in 1944. So it was just before apartheid came in. So it was generally easier. and it was really because of the second world war. My father was stationed in a section of the South African, um, defense force, which was the air force, and they were less regimented in terms of, um, segregation. And so he was just put in with a lot of, um, other white soldiers, well, airmen. And, and therefore he was then socially working in and living in circles and and met my mother. Um, but in my, when I grew up, um, when I went to university, I mean, just for example, I went to the University of Cape Town. So just to put the listeners in, my father then passed as white. And so we grew up believing we were white. Um, so I had all the privileges of being able to just apply to any of the Universities who, at that stage, were really for whites only. Um, people of color could apply to come to the university, but there was a board that decided, and so there were not that many people who were of a different color. Um, yeah. So, and and then you know, socially it was difficult, um, and 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 and. The repercussions were enormous, so there were people some people committed suicide um I had a friend of mine who was passing um and she was uh, her boyfriend was white, and at four o'clock in the morning um you know this was the time, and the security police would raid. Uh, there was a knock on the door. They burst in at four o'clock in the morning. Um, they weren't given time to dress. Um, her underwear was taken as evidence. Um, and they were taken down to the police station to be charged. But by then already, I think because of international pressure, they were less willing to really press charges. And But they said to them they either had to... Break up, or they had to leave the country, uh, which they chose to do, um and they left and went to live in the u k but not everyone has the money to do that, so yeah the the ramifications were enormous, you know, um in terms of my own story, because of the time when we were growing up, um the possibility would be that my father would have if this marriage had been uncovered my father would probably have gone to jail for up to 10 years Um, their marriage would have been annulled my mother because she was white and ostensibly didn't know about my father um, she would have maybe been given a fine we who would have been children would have been taken away and made wards of state and then you know, some of my, like my one brother who is slightly d- the darkest of us might have been reclassified because that's also what this government did is you could apply to be reclassified, <laughs> which, you know, is so absurd. Um But um very few people could really, very few people were ever classified from a non-white group into being white it might be the other way. Yeah. Right. Right.
1: Just so, uh, Bo, just so our listening audience can really understand, yes. uh, you said that apartheid really took place before 1948. That's when it was really bumped up because of the national party. Yes. Uh, we know that the Dutch came into Africa, Yeah. the British came in France and they decided, I think it was 1500s, 1600s, to divide Africa up. Yes. And, and each country got their own little piece. Yeah. And then the control of it, I just, I never could wrap my brain around why all the Africans didn't bind together, even now, and say, why'd you got to leave. <laughs> because of the of the rape and pillage of Africa that yeah. took place yeah. then, yeah, still taking place, and you would think, okay, you're you're restricting me and telling me this is my country. If I was African, this is yeah. my country, and you're telling me I can't do things in my country. Well, you leave. So I'm sure that all down through history people are wondering why that didn't happen.
2: Well, I think, you yeah, I, well, I mean, in terms of that, I think there were the settlers who came, came with guns for one. Um And, you know, I, I mean, I, I find the history of South Africa and the history of the United States so similar. Um, You know, you had native Americans living here. um, And I was just, listening to an incredible podcast by John Bewan called Seen on Radio and he has um he's an american talking about the history um of being white in america and he was saying that they were they found um, in Columbus's diaries when he arrived in, the, in america he spoke how how native americans were so um, friendly, brought flowers, welcomed them. And he immediately saw this as an opportunity to subjugate them, didn't see the fact that they were being treated with open arms. And he wrote that in his diary. So this is not me making this up. Um, yeah, I mean, it. you know, um, it is. And, and it still continues. I think the majority of black South Africans have been incredibly, um, generous. And I think Mandela, you know, really brought it to the table, um, of not turning this into a bloody revolution. Some young, um, South Africans are critical of him for doing that. Um, and saying, you know, because life hasn't really changed a lot for a lot of South Africans. Um, white South Africans on the whole still live very very well um, so structurally a lot has not really changed um, and yeah so it's complicated and I I, I really well, don't know why
0: Liz if, if yeah. I can back, I want to piggyback yeah. on your question look at the dynamic though in South Africa blacks Outnumbered whites. I, I want to say maybe I, I was thinking eighty to twenty, but I'm thinking seventy percent to thirty percent, or maybe at, maybe sixty to forty. In America, whites outnumbered blacks. The reverse. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and but yet two of the the most bizarre social experimental living experiences that ever took place. You know, it took place, and to this day. Both continents are suffering uh, from the sins of their forefathers.
2: But, you know, I, um, Clarence, I was just saying, listening to this podcast, which I really recommend everyone to listen to. It's brilliant. Um, You know, when the colonialists came to the United States, they weren't the majority. They were the minority. Um, But through... Killing and disease. Um, the indigenous people were taken care of, um, and then obviously, when enslaved people came, yeah. They, by, by which stage, you know, white Americans were in majority. Um, yeah.
0: Well, we're coming up we're, on an on an ID. If Liz, if I could do the ID, I'm going to throw it right back to you. If, okay, uh, go ahead. For our listeners, if if you just tuned in to Bring It On, uh, you're hearing a very fascinating conversation with our guest this evening. Her name is Bo Peterson. Um, By profession, she is a South African actress, um, no doubt an Academy Award winner, but nevertheless she's also author of the autobiographical play, Pieces of Me. And she's going to talk about that a little bit later in our broadcast, but uh, we thank her for joining us. She's going to not only talk about this play, but the harsh living conditions um, that are family experienced in South Africa while living under apartheid and that this family passed in America. That is a concept that we're not foreign to, but it's uh, this example of passing in South Africa is, is really fascinating. So with that, Liz, I, I turn it back to you.
2: All
1: right. I want to make sure that our listening audience understands what apartheid is. Apartheid are... Apartness is the language of the Afrikaans was a system of legislation that upheld segregation against non-white citizens in South Africa. After the National Party gained power in South Africa in 1948, its all-white government immediately began enforcing existing policies of racial segregation. Now, upon that statement, when you learned about your father, his secret, that he was really Black, yes. how did you feel about that?
2: You know, um, it was an intense experience. I think in some way I knew instinctively. I I always say the, the more I hear this, you know, families, when families have secrets, I do think the families know that... Um, I felt profound sadness um, for my father because I really felt that he had sacrificed a lot for us to give us um, all the advantages that he himself had not been given. Um, And at a cost, a huge cost for him. I mean, he never told my mother, who he was married to for 62 years. Um, he was very close to his mother. His mother had ambitions for her son. So, you know, I think as parents and and being a parent myself, we all know we want the best for our children. And I think for her to be separated from her son, not only from her son, but from her grandchildren, us, um, it was a huge price that they were all prepared to pay. And um, as I I think to you, Liz, you know, my story is not a, a unique story. There are so many stories like this in South Africa. Yeah. And I know exist here in the United States. And yes. yes. Yeah. So I felt deep sadness. I still feel deep sadness um, for my father. I felt deep deeply appreciative, but it did, you know, th- the sadness of this decision is that we were kind of afloat. We, we, we never identified with any group, really. Uh, my father, we always lived outside the town. Um, my parents never had uh, friends. We never had parties at our house. So, and I just thought that that is how children grew up. My father never came with us onto to the beaches um he never swam in the sea. I just thought that's what fathers did um He never told us stories of what it was like growing up, which is kind of you know Mahi, most parents do, but I also found out that i mm-hmm. that I know often parents don't. Um, I have just been involved with a production here in South Bend, in Indiana, where I live. Um, And I don't know if your listeners or people are aware of this. It's called Better Homes. And in the 50s, a group of African-Americans who had mainly come from the south to work at the Studebaker Center, I mean, Studebaker Factory, They built homes um, in a predominantly white area, but it was done in secret because of redlining that it wouldn't have happened. And it took them four years, but they got it done and they built proper homes um, for their children. Now, their children came to the opening night of the play and they said to us that a lot of them had no idea that their parents had done this for them. Um, It was dangerous. The the whole thing was done secretly. Um, So I do think that that parents often don't share uh, sacrifices because they kind of don't want to maybe burden their children. I mean, for my father, he couldn't tell us because if he tells us you know, children don't always keep secrets. Uh, so it, it was it was too dangerous, yes. really, for him to tell us. You mentioned that your father would have been in
1: prison for 10 years. Uh, here in America, those people that I know passed, their fear was that they would be lynched. So were there lynchings in South Africa like there were here in America during about that same time
2: period? Well, you know, in a way, the the, the Nationalist Party could do what they wanted to do with black people. So it wasn't the same kind of lynching. It was just more a, um official lynching. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of people were detained. Uh, You didn't have to, you you sometimes, you weren't given a lawyer. A lot of people died in prison um, from beatings. Police could do, I mean, I remember as a young woman walking in the streets of Johannesburg and seeing four white men, put. they'd been kicking a black man and they put him into the... Uh, what do you call it in America? The boot of your car, your trunk. trunk, trunk of your car. Yeah. And I, um, I challenged them and they were big men and they said to me, oh, he had stolen something. And I said, well, then call the police. And they basically, um, I, it was me, a woman with four men um, and they just, used foul language got into the car and drove away with this man in in the trunk of their car so yeah there were a lot of lynchings maybe not in that same way of what i've understood lynching to be um oh no there were terrible atrocities mm-hmm. happening in south africa all the time and it was it was no one complained because they had the law behind them yeah yeah
0: and, and this type of conditioning um you had referenced back in the 1600s yeah that was that was astounding for me. I didn't know it went back or the vestiges of apartheid went back that far but that has to be centuries long conditioning of, of one's mind
2: yeah
0: that here's the hierarchy or order you are here. And we will forever be here, and we are your providers, your saviors, your protectors. We think for you, and we're going to tell you where to live. Yeah, we're going to tell you what type of lifestyle you're having, and and you will just s- simply get out of the way and be transparent and disappear and be seen and not heard. Yeah, and then this goes on,
2: and it served you know economically. I mean, the, the a lot of these these laws were done with the economic um, idea behind it, you know, cheap labor. Um, yeah, so so when the settlers came, I mean, they brought with them enslaved people. So uh, mainly from Angola, Madagascar, Malaysia, and Indonesia. And they were indentured servants as well from India. Um, yeah, so that's yeah. why I say the history is very similar, you know. Um and yeah <laughs> awful, awful uh, history uh,
0: Let me ask you this, how did you and Liz meet?
2: <laughs> so um, a really good friend of mine has been living in the United States she's also from South Africa and she is married to a professor of music at in Bloomington Elaine Barker um, who knows Liz and mm. Um, so I've been trying to get my play to different people, but not being from the United States, it's not always that easy. Um, I'm also very keen on doing this, bringing my play into people's homes, because I think something different happens rather than being in a theater, a formal theater. Um, and that's how I met Liz. Um, so I'm, I was thrilled.
1: Yeah, and I was thrilled to be invited. I wasn't quite sure. I didn't remember, Alan, I meet so many people because yeah. I I do place also my group Resilience Productions. Yeah. And he sent me this email and I thought, wait a minute, do I know this person? And I said, Well, I'm going. I was intrigued. And then when I got there, I go, Oh, yes, I know sure. who you are.
2: <laughs> and I think you also <laughs>
1: Alex, Alex Lichtenstein. Yeah, I knew him immediately because we've been working on the Green Lawn Cemetery Project, which Indianapolis is trying to pour concrete over the first black cemetery in Indianapolis. So there's a group of us that say, out of respect, out of moral ethics, let's remove the bodies and do a decent burial. And there are those who are saying, we don't have to do that. So one of the ministers who's with us, a white minister, said, RIP does not mean rest in pavement. And we thought, oh, we love that. Let's make (laughs) T-shirts out of that. So it's still a battle. I think they're going to go ahead and pour concrete over it. I don't don't know, but um, that's something that we've been working on, I, I I ran into the sheriff or no, the police department chief of Ellettsville. And he said, do you know what's happening in Indianapolis? And I go, yeah. So the word is getting out there of what they're trying to do to a cemetery that existed since 1818, wow. full of black bodies, full of yeah. black bodies. Mm-hmm. And, and all we want is show some respect. For and sure. yes, legally they can do it. Legally, they made the law so they can do it. But what about the moral aspect of it? And we're hoping to appeal to somebody on that. We're hoping. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's where we are. If, how much of your story are you willing to tell our listening audience? And I would, I love the aspect that you did your show in someone's home. Would you yeah. be willing to do it? on a little stage at the history center here in Bloomington?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, um, when I was in South Africa, I worked with um, a young Zimbabwean refugee who had swum across the Zambezi river to come to South Africa. Um, And we did this, we called it Ikaya theater. Ikaya is a Zulu or Tosan word for home or house. And, I mm-hmm. I thought, you know, I didn't grow, I grew up in a small town. The first time I went into a formal theatre was when I was 17, when I went to university. So, for me, theatre is always something, I love going to theatre, but there's always this slight sense of, ooh, I, it, it always makes me slightly anxious. It's so much easier if I'm yeah. in someone's home. I'm I'm a storyteller, so... Um, yeah. So for me, this is, you, you can see the people. It's in their home. It's, um, it's, it's, I think it, it, it's, it's what I would love to do. Um, yeah. I mean, I can tell my story. It's, it's, my story is basically when yeah. I was 18, um, I discovered that my father had been passing all, all his life. And, um, you know, initially I was, I didn't quite know how to approach him. I did write him a letter telling him that I had been told um, by a poet, in fact, who lived and grew up with him in the same town that he grew up in um, and that I was proud. My last name is Peterson. My father's name was Benjamin Peterson and that I was proud to be a Peterson He never returned. He never replied to my letter. But my mother told me, my father used to play the piano. My father was a very musical man. Um, And he often played the piano when he was upset. We never often knew why he was upset. Um, But my mother said for about three days, he played the piano. Um, I did try to speak to him subsequently. I then also got to meet my other family, which was great. So really the people are fascinated with my father's story, but I felt that it wasn't up to me to tell my father's story, but rather to tell my story of what it was like growing up with a father like my father, who was really an extraordinary father. You know, he worked, worked very hard his whole life to give us a really good life. I come from a family of five. We were all afforded the possibility of going to university if we wanted to. Um, Four of us did, one of us didn't. Um, He lived a very simple life with my mother. Both my mother and he were fantastic parents. But he was always absent. Um, He was always removed because he couldn't really be himself. (laughs) Because as soon as I, you know, say, so daddy, tell us what was it like when boy and he would just either change the subject every now and then he would tell us little things but not a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I was very fortunate to meet one of his sisters um, who was a huge presence in my life um, a woman who was lived her life to the full and she adored my bro- my father because in spite of all this my father supported His family, his biological family. So he would send money for my grandmother. He sent money to this aunt. Um, He would contact them by phone. Um, But he he never, and he would see my grandmother. My grandmother would come to see us when we were visiting the town without us knowing that our grandmother was still alive. My father had told us that he was an orphan, which he wasn't. Um, And because I'm an actor, you know, people always ask me, why did I want to be an actor? And I never knew why I wanted to be an actor. I just knew it is what I needed to do. And I then, really, only last year, (laughs) I suddenly thought, I know. Well, first of all, I had a perfect actor that I learned how to be a perfect actor was my father, that in some way my father was a consummate actor. He lived in the belly of the beast, you know. I if if the people who admired him, who came to ask his advice, if they had known that he was not white, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I think they would have, yeah, he, it would have been a terrible outcome. So. Um, yeah. So, and basically that is my story. I, I talk about that. I, you, I, I have written a monologue about my grandmother who I never met, my other aunt who I was very close to my auntie, Sarah, and then my auntie Marjorie who also passed. And, um, so my, uh, my younger sister and my older sister and I have been trying to get archival, um, information about my father's family and there's some stuff that we don't know I um information I asked my aunt in 2012 if she would tell me where my father went to high school and she wrote wrote a letter back saying please don't I don't I'm not going to tell you so ah. yeah yeah
1: well, all of that stuff with, was so secretive in my family. And like you said, all families have secrets. And and my family did the same thing. Um, And going back and doing genealogy work, yes. uh, I think I mentioned yes. you to this before when we met, if the census taker didn't ask questions, they would put white down for race. Or yes. if they asked, then the next 10 years, that sense of taker would write down mulatto. Yeah. And so I only was able to go back so far not knowing, well, is this person white or they're mulatto or are they really white? And, and it, I, I didn't know. So mm-hmm. it stopped at one point because I I don't know. And it was kind of confusing and since everything back during the day was based on what color you were, what race you were in, and then because of the race mixing, and it's, and, you know, even today yeah. when I give talks, I tell people, you got to realize black people come in all shades from eggshell white <laughs> to eggplant plant dark and blue eyes, green eyes, brown eyes. So there you have it. And we didn't come up with that idea. We didn't make that distinction that was done by the dominant race and I guess it still goes on today even
2: So even I know a very oh yeah when the senses used to come around apparently parents would be very careful what they put their children in if their child was a bit dark because there were certain colors that would make you look darker So you would choose a certain color to dress your children in, in case the senses looked at you, but then looked at your child and saw your child was darker and then would be suspicious. Hmm. Yeah. Mm.
0: And you know, also,
2: the reality of it, that I would say that in South Africa, a lot of white people, if they did their genealogy, would find that they're not white. Um, and the government knew that, so they did yeah. these terrible tests. This pencil test, where they put a pencil in your hair. If your if the pencil fell out, you were white. If it remained stuck, you were probably not white. What?
0: Yeah. I, I I have heard I have heard everything from using a brown bag. I've never a brown bag. I've heard the
1: brown bag.
2: Yeah, uh,
0: and 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 I've heard. Um, this is the first time I've heard about the pencil test.
2: The pencil test, checking your gums, checking your your fingernails somehow. I don't know. Yes.
0: Oh my gosh! At, at this moment, at this juncture, we're going to let the audience sit and ponder that while we do a quick ID. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you've just tuned in, we're, we're we're on the second side of our uh-huh. interview with. Um, Ms. Bo Peterson, who is a professional South African actress and author of an amazing autobiographical play called Pieces of Me. Uh, she's joining us to not only talk about this play, but also about the harsh living and absurd conditions that her family experienced. And she was, and she witnessed as a child in South Africa while living under apartheid. Um, I I have a, a question. Uh, for you, as far as when Nelson Mandela and, and really I, I take my hat off to him being on Robben Island for, I think we're close to maybe four decades or something. Just, just. Seven years, yeah. Yeah. And all that he experienced. Um, and then when he's freed, um, was catapulted to being a leader. Yes. South Africa and and could have and you mentioned earlier some have critiqued him for not using an iron fist for retribu- retribution. We're hearing a lot about that word retribution these days in America, and that's a whole another show. And we're going <laughs> to go there not today, not today. <laughs> but he could have been he could have used retribution, yes. but chose uh Shows reconciliation. Yes. And had the tribunals. Yes. Uh, I think they were the truth and
2: reconciliation committee. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And um, and people could bear their souls. Yes. While not fearing jail time or punishment. And people okay. did that. Now, what's your thought? Did you, were you there in South Africa when this went on? And, and what was your impression as you saw this unfold?
2: You know, it was. Um extraordinary i mean it was extraordinary to be in the country um and and i mean i went to victor Fester, which was the prison where mandela was kept um when he was released so i was right there the famous picture of him walking out with his wife winnie and you know giving the black power salute and all of that it was an extraordinary time um the Truth and Reconciliation um, Commission. I, I attended some of the hearings. Um, they were they were devastating, in a way. Um, you know, I mean, we all knew what was going on. Well, you know, some people could choose not to know. Yeah. Um, so I was. Yeah, I, I, I attended a few of the hearings. Um, and they were just devastating, you know. I mean, families just the the, the torture, the um, oh, the it it was really awful. Um, my husband, who, uh, who's a professor at Notre Dame, he's a professor of mediation, and he was part of the underground, part of the ANC underground, and part and very involved in the struggle. He, um, for his class here, he actually. Has a, um, a video a clip of the Truth and Re- Reconciliation Commission. And one of the worst security police who had a particular way, the, he had a particular kind of torture. Um, and he came to ask forgiveness, and they asked him to reenact what it was that he did. And, you know, when he was. Um, understandably, well, I don't know. I mean, maybe not understandably, but he was, I think it was, in some ways, I thought it was quite brave of him to come and to be so honest. But, you know, and families were given the opportunity they could, they could respond in any way they wanted to. And some people did forgive and some people wanted to meet their perpetrators or their, the killers of their children and some didn't um but you know tutu was an extraordinary individual and but even he i mean there's a famous photograph where he just put his head in his hands and wept Ooh, i'm yes. getting emotional yes. as i speak now about it um because people were treated in the most ex- terrible 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 way yeah so um I found it very difficult to go to, but what I was also saying is that, you know, I think what irritated me so much was that so many white South Africans would say, oh, well, we didn't know this was going on, which was so disingenuous, you know, because really it didn't, yes, the newspapers were controlled, the television was controlled, you know, we only got television in 1977, we only had state stations and so uh, stuff was um, checked to see it was very much like I think Russian television at the moment Um, people couldn't say certain things but there were always ways to find out that you know people were speaking theater theater was fantastic it was such a tool in which people could say what was going on Um, so for me it's a weak weak point to say well we didn't know what was going on and then, of course, suddenly you, most white people would, they were, they were suddenly had always been anti apartheid. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how did the nationalist govern, government get voted in year after year after year? If not, I mean, only whites could vote. So who was putting the nationalists back into power? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was, um, You know, I think it was um, an important thing to do. I I just wish more. I wish more conversations were done because we were, you know, uh, institutionalized racists. It was in every fiber of our makeup and and still is in some ways. It still exists. I mean, a lot of those structures, although they – They not segregated, but in essence, they are still there. So I think a lot more needed to be done. Um, and unfortunately, um, after Mandela, the, the president after Mandela, Mbeki was a good president, although he was a HIV denialist and was his ruling, you know, resulted in a lot of people dying from AIDS and which they shouldn't have. But after him, we had President Zuma, who was truly, um, you know, not a good president. And I think South Africa is really struggling as a result. Yeah.
0: Do you do you visit your homeland? Um, Well, if I may be as personal, I ask you: Do you and your husband have children, and do you take them back to your homeland to visit, and do you explain? what it's like growing up
2: or oh yeah well we only left in 2015 i think uh, my husband was very involved in the initial stages of the new government um yeah i mean we only left in 2015 i have one daughter so um as she finished her high schooling in um south africa and has been at university here in the united states Um, I still have brothers and family and sister in South Africa. So we try and go as much as we can, but it's very far away and expensive. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yes, it is. Yes, it is.
2: Um, I wanted to get
1: something. I think I've asked you this. When your father decided to pass, did he have the blessings of his mother? I believe you said he He did. did. His family. said, we want the best for you, so.
2: Yeah.
0: yeah yeah and but when he when he entered the military oh. uh didn't, didn't they have record of him being uh I, I don't know what the phrase would be black or Afrikaner 80. or what was mm. it?
2: so african is generally was a more like a cultural identification you'd either have so there were four major classifications white asian so meant if you came from india area, um, colored, which I know is a derogatory term in the United States, but that referred to what my father was, which is mixed race. And the fourth was Bantu, which referred to black South Africans. So it was a, yes, my father was, um, he, when he was born, he was on his um, birth certificate, he would, he would have had the classification colored. Uh, meaning non-white, and, but around this time, what happened, when the nationalists came into power, a lot of people lost, in inverted commas, lost their birth certificates, and then through, sometimes through um, people would, exactly what um, Liz was saying, like in terms of the censor, the censor thought you were maybe white, and if you were with white people, then um, they didn't dig too deeply. Um, they could, you could get um, a birth certificate in a different classification.
0: Sure. Okay. And Liz, if we could talk now about, um, you talked briefly about bringing her play to our area. Uh, we are single-handedly culturally enriching the Bloomington area, uh, both with productions from Resilience and also other productions. But i would I would really love to try to get pieces of me into the bloomington area so how how, do, how does one go about seeing the play? Can we see it digitally or is it something that you really choose to bring forth in person, and how could we do that here?
2: So I do know that um Alex has invited me to come and perform for um his class um who are doing South African history and will be going. Then to South Africa um, after that. And I think he was talking the end of March and April, but I'm willing, you know, willing and able. I have a car. (laughs) (laughs) It's only like a three hour drive, I think, from South Bend.
0: Okay. And I, Liz, Liz, I I leave that in your area as far as planning and executing that because. Yeah,
1: because I think it would be perfect. Sure, I do. Yeah, I think it would be perfect for the History Center where we do our performances because it's a small, intimate stage, uh, similar to being in someone's living room. It's that small. So uh, it would really work out. Um, I'm going to send an email to the director, Daniel Schlegel, tomorrow. to see. I don't know what they've got planned for March for Women's History Month, but I think it would be great. It's a great play. It was just riveting. I was sitting there just, I couldn't take my eyes off. What really got me is each character that you played, It everything about you transformed to that character. Then the next one, it wasn't you. And then when I got to really see you, I go, how did she do that? (laughs) It was a but Clarence, if you had seen it, you would have thought three totally different people, three individuals. She was that good.
0: Well, it that was, that is awesome. That leads into a question I, I ultimately want to ask: Is you're a professional actress? What is your favorite role? what What type of roles have you played in the past? And uh, and then in responding to Liz's uh, observation of you, share with us what is your favorite role or your favorite method of acting.
2: So um you know in South Africa um I I mean I've been acting for a long time I suppose one of my favorite parts was um it's the Greek tragedy <laughs> the sounds I got to called Medea but um what um a very um creative couple in South Africa they worked with a dance company and we did um a, a, a sort of a modern interpretation of Medea. Um, it was done on beach sand and it was dance, done with this dance company. And it was really in terms of looking at the other, how we other people, you know, the, the arts the which Medea was. Um, so that what I, I would think is one of, my, and then I was very fortunate to do a production. I don't know if you know of the South African playwright, Athel Fugard um but he was one of our um famous he is one of our famous um playwrights and i did a a, a a play called statements after the arrest after an arrest under the immorality act and it's about a a white woman and a black man who fall in love and then they get caught um and it's about that yeah so i i would say yeah. that
0: Bring the play yeah, almost like the, the, like the loving family, yeah. Yeah, like the, the play, loving family. If you bring the play, if you bring this play to Bloomington during the the play or the Q and A portion after the play,
2: yes, can you
0: demonstrate the pencil test? Because uh, because I, I want to see this, and I'm trying to wrap my mind around how can I? I will
2: know, do it. I the, will the, do it.
0: The lengths that, that, that the controlling group went to to subjugate. And to demean individuals, it's beyond me. Okay. And with that, I'll leave it to Liz for the final wrap-up question. And we're going to have to land the plane, as they say.
1: Okay. Well, think about this, uh, uh, Clarence. The pencil would fall out of your hair.
0: It would. It, <laughs> there go. it
2: wouldn't stay. Oh. So, <laughs> <laughs> and, and guess what, Clarence? You would be white.
0: <laughs> oh, oh, there man. you go. Oh my God. What? I mean, it's it's beyond any of your fingernails, your gums. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. uh, I know, I know,
2: it's awful. Well, yeah.
0: On that, on that note, I I wanted to (laughs) know.
1: Yeah one one last question, if we could get this in, how do you feel about uh South Africa the way it is today, and compare it with America? Because we're going. Are both of us, we're going backwards? We kind of mirror each other. It seems like we're going backwards here. Are they no. going backwards there? We're, we're still about the same with that.
2: No, you know, I... Look, I think the whole world is in a bit of a mess, and I do think right-wing uh, politics is rising up. Um, no, I mean, I, I do. Th- there are different problems in South Africa at the moment, and there's a lot of structural corruption um and politically i i think it's going to be quite difficult to fix it and i uh there's a lot of poverty unemployment um so it's an interesting question liz i'll have to think more about it it feels like it's it's equally going to horrible places (laughs) but um they are different they are different, yeah.
1: Okay, all right. Well, thank you. Clarence?
0: Well, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this, and we just want to thank Bo Peterson, a professional South African actress, who hopefully we will get here in Bloomington to display her craft. And she's also an author of the autobiographical play, Pieces of Me. Thank you for joining us this evening, Bo, and discussing your play and the harsh living conditions and environment that you and your family grew up in. In South Africa while living under apartheid.
2: Well, thank you very much.
1: Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, we'd like to hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address is Bring It On at wfhb.org
0: along those lines if you have an event or happening the african-american community should know about please send the info directly to the bring it on staff once again uh that address is bring it on at wfhb.org
1: our show's executive producer is none other than the handsome clarence boone our assistant producer is Bois liz mitchell Our consultant and WFHB News Department Director is Cade Young. Our program engineer is La Fontante. and our original theme music was created by Jamal Ephraim, with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Liz Mitchell.
0: And I'm Clarence Boone. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On, right here on your community radio station, WFHB
1: you've been listening to bring it on a volunteer powered production of community radio wfhb in bloomington indiana
0: bring it on is your forum for open dialogue on the people issues and events affecting the african-american community in south central indiana and beyond
1: Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org.
0: That's it at wfhb.org.